Lord, truly we exalt you tonight. Truly, Lord God, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Truly, you, there is none like you. We give you all the honor. We give you all the praise because, Lord, if it weren't for you, if it weren't for the complete work that you did on the cross, Lord, we would not even be here tonight praising and worshiping. Lord, we would be amiss. We would be just wandering amiss. But, God, because of you, because of your great love towards us and sending forth your Son tonight, we can say, I exalt thee. Lord, I exalt thee. Jesus, we just want to pause and reflect on who you are. Reflect that you are the all-powerful one. You are the almighty one. And we thank you that, Lord, in the middle of our week, we could just come and hear from your word and we could receive from you, Lord Jesus. I ask that, Lord, you would just go forth tonight, that you would be glorified in what will be brought forth. May your words be upon my lips, O God. For anything that is in my notes that's not ordained of you, O God, I just pray that only that which you have purposed to be said would be said in the name of Jesus put me behind your cross that only Lord you would be seen in Jesus mighty name amen amen well God bless you God bless you well I'm not Pastor Julio there we go <laughs> there for a moment it said Pastor Julio might confuse the people on the screen Pastor Julio his, his hair has grown a little bit longer yeah <laughs> I want to know him him being Jesus not Pastor Julio I already know him I want to know him that is our study tonight as we continue in Philippians chapter 3 Pastor Julio concluded uh, chapter 2 uh, two weeks ago, but so far as we've been working through this, we see a letter written to the Philippian church. We see that perhaps this Philippian church is a bit of the favored child of Paul because as he writes this letter, he's not reprimanding them, he's not uh, correcting them, but rather he's encouraging them, he's stirring them up because. They've been faithful in continuing to spread the gospel. They've been faithful in supporting him while he's been in, in uh, prison. And uh, so now he, he's come before them. But tonight we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And so let's start by reading. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Not the one in the house tonight. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcision on the eighth day, excuse me, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead wow so he opens oh by i by virtue of i just need to let those online know when i says um be careful of the dogs not the one in the house you all don't know we have a service dog i wasn't uh, i wasn't making any innuendos but there is a service dog in the house and so uh later on when i talk about the dogs please don't think oh that's what she meant there's somebody there like that no we actually have a physical um canine in house and so um going back to what i was saying he starts off his letter and he says this Finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. This is a little bit strange to me. He is in prison and he writes this letter to us to tell us to rejoice. I'm not sure of any inmates in prison that would say to write home to their their family and say, rejoice. The first thing they would do is perhaps complain of the circumstances in that prison. Perhaps complain of some needs that they have unmet. They wouldn't start off with rejoice. Maybe they would say how much they miss their family. Maybe they would say how much they're longing to see their family. But Paul, in this segment of the letter, he says, finally rejoice. He's letting us know he's transitioning. And this is a theme. Actually, we will look at the theme of rejoice a little bit more when we look at chapter four. But this is a sub-theme in the book of Philippians, uh, because there are different times when Paul refers to joy, refers to rejoicing, but actually in this area, he's, he's changing the stream from where he was in what we would call chapter two. We know that the letter was not originally written in chapters. It was written as a continuous letter, but as we see it, okay, before us, and he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice. What is more interesting is not the fact that he's encouraging them to rejoice while, they're, while he's in prison. It's what is following. It says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He goes from finally rejoice, letting them know I'm going to transition into something, but I want you to think about what I'm going to say because at the end of it, brethren, 
Rejoice about it. Rejoice about it. And so he's telling them, I'm, I have no problems with repeating myself. I have no problems with restating things. Those that, that, that would recall their school years, how did you learn things through memorization, through repeating it over and over? At times, you would have to say speeches before your class when they would prepare you to do public speaking. And so you would have to memorize your speech. And how did you memorize it? By repeating it over and over to yourself. And Paul's saying, I have no problems with repeating things to you because it is for your safeguard. And in other words, what I'm saying to you, in the future, you're going to look back on it and say, oh, I need, ah, that's what it means. It's for your protection. It's for your future use. Coming right out of the gate, I have no problems repeating. You need to just pay attention when I'm repeating. You know, say it once, I got you. Say it twice, oh, okay. Hmm. Say it thrice, oh boy. There must be something here I'm missing. There must be something here I need to pay attention to. 2 Peter 1 verses 3 to 15 says it this way. I think it right. As long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. By way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be as soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter uses the same language as Paul. Paul says he's going to repeat himself. Peter's using the word, I'm going to be a reminder to you because there's going to come a point in time I'm going to die. And I'm not going to be here to regularly feed you the truth. I'm not going to be here to regularly encourage you in the way. I'm not going to be here to say, well, this is how the Lord taught us. You're going to have to recall these things to mind. You're going to have to remember it. So Paul and Peter both recognize that the only way they're going to remember the things when Paul is no longer with them, when Peter is no longer with them, is by route of repeating it over and over to them. And so this is a place that the people are in. I'm not afraid to admit to you I'm going to repeat, but what is he going to repeat? What is he wanting them to catch? What's the instruction? Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who are these dogs that Paul is referring to? Who are these evildoers? Well, the answer is actually in the text itself. The answer is in his final part, the, the third warning, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's the ones that Paul's warning them about. Those that mutilate the flesh are the ones he's calling dogs. He's calling them evildoers. Who were these people? They were the Jewish legalists. They were known as the Judaizers. They believed that, Jesus, that believing in Jesus for salvation alone, that's not enough. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus for your salvation. You had to be circumcised because that's what the law said. Remember when we studied Galatians uh, over a year ago, 
We looked at this because Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's he saying? Galatians, you were doing so well. You were believing in the completed work that Jesus did on the cross for you. You understood the works that he had done on that cross. You knew that through faith in what he did came your salvation. And now you're bending the knee to think you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law in order to fulfill that salvation, in order to complete it. That's the group that Paul's speaking to. The group that went to the, the, the Galatians and was perverting their understanding, bewitching them into believing this distortion of faith. This group that Paul is warning the church in Philippi, we have no proof whether or not they actually got in and infiltrated their teaching, but he's warning them. So the reason why Paul was warning them is because this group had a, had a, a practice that every time Paul went from town to town or from church to church ministering to the people, they would come along behind and say, now listen, you heard what Paul said, but you know, in order to really be saved, you have to be circumcised. And so Paul is saying, be careful of these guys. Be careful because they are coming in to cause trouble. Paul calls, calls them dogs. He calls them dogs. He tells them, don't give them any attention because salvation is not something that we earn. How many here tonight could say, my grace that I received from Jesus, I received because I did this, that, and the other thing. Those of us who have truly tasted of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the salvation that he has given us, can truly say, if you have tasted of that kind of salvation, the salvation that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will know that you will know there's not one thing you did to earn it. It didn't matter how big your offering was. It didn't matter how often you attended the church. It didn't even matter how much you volunteered. Those were outward expressions of your love towards God and your love towards the community of believers, of your involvement in believing and in gathering together. But those did not merit you that free gift of salvation because then it would never be called free. And Paul's saying, mark those, be careful, watch those, pay attention, beware of the dogs, the evildoers, because they want to distort the, the doctrine that has been taught to you. They want to distort, he didn't even use the word doctrine. He, they want to distort the message 
of the gospel. And then he goes on to say this. He flips it. He brings the focus of the, muti- of the mutilation of the flesh, the circumcision of the flesh, and he flips it to bring the spiritual emphasis in. And Paul is so unique that way. He knows just how to flip that quarter and make your attention go, hmm. So he's saying to the the Philippians in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's not saying, oh, you know what? We're the real Jews because we, we've tasted of the grace of God. And so therefore we've replaced Israel. No, what he is saying is because our old nature, the old person that I was, the things that I used to do that did not bring glory to God, the things that I used to say, the way I used to walk, that old man has been cut away when I surrendered myself, when I in faith believed what Jesus did on the cross. That old man became crucified, that that old man was cut away. That's what he is saying. For we are the circumcision. We we represent the true cutting away of the old Man, we represent the true cutting away of the old flesh. That's what he's saying. Not the flesh as in the physical, which they were going from place to place, these Judaizers telling, oh, you got to be circumcised. Oh, you got to be circumcised. No, he's talking in the spiritual, the old flesh, the old me, the old you. The Judaizers saw it from a physical standpoint, but Paul is directing it from a spiritual standpoint. I'm dying to the old self, the old life, the old melody, and I'm cutting away, and I'm believing in the work of the cross and what Jesus truly came to do for me. Matthew 5.17 says this, Do you not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? I've come, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill the law. Because of what Jesus did, the circumcision was not necessary. Because he truly is the full package of that. Our justification and our salvation is found in him. But Paul goes on to say, the latter part of verse 4 through 7, it says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. He says to the Philippians, I am the most qualified. I am the most qualified by my very DNA. 
by my very DNA. Would you allow me to elaborate almost? Allow me to tell you. That would be like me saying to you, I'm an Italian of the Italians. And then you go look at my ancestry.ca and you might find a few more things in me. But, but Paul said this, allow me to elaborate. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Therefore, his parents, according to the Jewish law at that time, were godly people. Why? Because they followed the Levitical law. The Levitical law of, of Leviticus that says, and on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskins shall be circumcised. So his parents were godly people. So he is therefore really a Jew. I am of the stock of Israel. I'm of the, the stock of the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Therefore, I'm in, in heir to the covenant with them. I'm a tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was a very distinguished tribe. If you said you were of the tribe of Benjamin in those days, that was a, that was a very reputable tribe to be a part of. They were the tribe that was distinguished because out of that tribe came Israel's first king, Saul. It was the tribe that um, aligned itself faithful with, uh, with uh, Judah when Israel divided its two kingdoms, its two nations, I mean. And, and it was also the tribe that had the city of Jerusalem within its boundaries. So... For Paul to say, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, oh, wow, yeah, really? Wow. That, that was a, a reputable thing. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says this because at that time, there were some Hebrews that were a little bit embarrassed to be Hebrews. Come on, everybody has something about their culture they're embarrassed about. You know, every culture has that, oh, I would not. Right? So they were embarrassed of certain aspects of their Jewishness, and so they gravitated to the Grecian ways. And, and so some of them, in this, they were understood to be Grecian Jews because they were practicing more of the, the Greek style and culture. And so Paul's saying, I'm not a Grecian Jew. I'm a Jew-Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews because I practice our culture and our ways. Then remember the Pharisees? You, you all know from Sunday school, they weren't fair, you see. So the Pharisees, he says, I was, he was a Pharisee, and he, and he states this because he wants us to know that he was of the most religious sect. The, the Pharisees... Um, <clears throat> were, were that, that uh, higher sect. They, they took their pride in everything that they knew because they followed the law to the letter of the T. And Paul says, I'm a Pharisee. And what does the, the Pharisees, the name Pharisee means, the separated ones. In other words, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a separated one. I've been set apart type of thing. So he had a lot to be proud in, and he was kind of boasting a little bit here. But there's a reason for it, because he wants to have those that are listening. Remember, he started with, finally rejoice. 
So he's, he's transitioning their mind from the thought that they were just talking about and that he was just talking about in the letter when he was talking about Timothy and Epaphrodites. And, he, and he's transitioning them and he's wanting them to beware of something. So there, there's, he's giving them a reason why they have to be rejoicing. Right? And so he's boasting of himself. And he, and he continues in his resume or in his biography, and he says, uh, oh, you know, by the way, concerning zeal, a persecutor, in the, a, a persecutor of the church, that was him. No one has more zeal than I. Because you know what I used to do? I used to go into the homes of the Christians and drag them out and put them into jail. If you were to look in, in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, he, he comments that that is who he was. Matter of fact, when Stephen was stoned to death, who did they bring the garments of Stephen to? Go back to the, the previous verses of uh, chapters, the last verses of chapter 7, maybe 56 or 58. The, the clothes of uh, the garments of Stephen were laid at the or given to to Saul, so he was able to boast that he was the ones who would a part of the sect that would persecute the Christians. I persecuted the church because I felt they were being blasphemous before God by claiming that Jesus was God. So Paul has a lot to brag about. But then he hits home and he, and he like almost pops the ball out of the park. And he says, blameless, that was me. I was blameless. I don't know, when I read that, I'm like, whoa. Like that's, that's like pretty proud to say you're blameless, Paul. But you see, again, he's wanting to paint the picture of who he was before he tasted of Christ. Before he tasted of the salvation of the Lord. So according to the law, he was meeting every tick, tick, yep, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm. He met every prerequisite. So according, if he met every prerequisite and he followed the law great and he followed it to the T, then by merits of the law, he was righteous, and so therefore, if he was righteous, he could stand before them and say boastfully that he was blameless. That he was blameless. But this all means nothing to me, he says. It means zilch. Righteousness does not hold any weight to me. This righteousness, that is. Whatever I had... Whatever I had, I count as a loss. I count them as rubbish, garbage. What do you do with garbage? You put it to the curb. What do you do with garbage? You get rid of it. You don't keep it. And Paul is saying all that lifestyle of works, all that, that DNA, everything that set me to be apart as though I was righteous, I put that all aside. It means nothing to me. It means nothing to me. Why? Because he had an encounter. He had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And when he had that encounter, he was transformed. He said, 
I'll put it in my terms. Jesus made me blind so that I could see internally who I was truly. He made me blind to the external things that were around me because he wanted me to see the truth of who I was. What was the truth of Paul's flesh? Who was the real Paul? And so God made me blind to the external so that I could see the internal and that internal needed a savior. And that internal reflection made me to hear... And he, what, did, what did Paul say when he fell to the ground? He called out to them, who are you, my Lord? And in other words, he recognized him as a master. He recognized him as Lord over his life, even though he did not know Jesus at that time. And in his obedience, he comes to experience this salvation. He said, when God saved me, all these things that I just shared all these religious achievements, my family, my heritage, my obedience, my membership with the Pharisees, everything that I held as strength and power, everything that I saw as assets in my life gave me, everything that I thought gave me entrance into the kingdom of God, you know what? It was nothing. It had no value to me any longer. When I came into that encounter with Christ, I saw all of this was deadville. Can you bear witness with that with Paul? They weren't for nothing. In this respects, it was nothing to me, but it wasn't nothing. It didn't, it didn't do nothing to me. It was nothing to me, but it didn't do nothing to me. In the sense of this, it allowed him to acknowledge there is a God. It, it allowed him to see that there was a God. But in seeing and knowing of that God, he didn't know Jesus. He didn't know what that God had for him. He said, I counted all, all my assets that I once had, all those things that I once held dear as my identity as this Jew, now got pushed aside into their rightful column. Now they were liabilities to me. They were liabilities because they prevented me. They were what held me to religiosity. But Jesus was calling me to relationship. Jesus was calling me to this faith walk in believing. I once persecuted those who believed in him, but now he was calling me to believe in him. So now everything that I held as an asset, everything that I held as an identity of who I was, I am the righteousness because I am blameless because I follow the law to the T. I now see as a liability because it hindered me from the truth of knowing exactly who God was. When God made me blind to the, uh, to the external, I saw that true relationship with Jesus does not come through external means. It's through an internal change. That's the true circumcision, the internal change. The internal change of the cutting away of those things that are interfering in our walk with Christ. 
Oh, and we can go on a whole tangent of what those things could be. In this respects to the passage tonight, it's his religiosity. But think about it for yourself. What heart issues do you have that actually are hindering your walk with God? What things are you holding inside there are hindering you with your walk with God? You could just park there and and think about it on your own. But verses 8 to 9, as we continue, says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Right there is the answer. Right there, if you are one that likes to highlight and understand, underline and and star in your Bible, right there is what you need to underline. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. What you have comes through your faith. Your righteousness comes through faith. I'm counting everything I've lost. I'm moving everything that I thought what made me to be the great man that I was, Paul is saying. I'm counting that as dung. It doesn't mean anything to me. Why? Because I want to know him. He says that I may know him. Verses 10 and 11, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul paints right here the truth of it all. Okay, Philippians, here's the bear. Let's bring it down right to the, to the floor level. It's all about intimacy with God. It's all about intimacy with Jesus. That's where your relationship is at. It's not about the works of the flesh. It's not about any of those things that I have just told you about in my resume, my biography of who I am. It's not about that. It's about intimacy with God. Do you know him? He's saying, I want to know the person of Jesus Christ. And who he is. I really want to know him. Not in the sense of just knowledge of the Bible. You know there are people that actually read the Bible just as literature. But not as conversing. um, Not as something that can convert them. Change them. They just read it and they study it. I remember in university in, in, in English class. Uh we dissected a psalm. I was like, well, okay, this is fun. For me, it was like, ee. <laughs> I felt like I had an upper edge until I, I, I started to hear what people were, were uh, bringing out of it that, that was neither biblical nor, nor godly, but they were somehow pulling out things. 
Some people take the word of God just as literature. But Paul is saying, I want to know him beyond just a book knowledge, beyond just the theology. You see, I've got all the pedigree already. I want to know him. Sometimes we say, hey, how's it going? Hey, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good, blessed, highly favored. I want to know Jesus behind, beyond the Christianese. Oh, hey, hi, how are you doing? Oh, you know, God's working all things together for good in my life. I want to know Jesus beyond all the phraseology that we like to use as Christians. I want to know him. I like this, what I found. Spurgeon said it this way. They tell me he's a refiner, that he cleanses from spots. He has washed me in his precious blood. And to that extent, I know him. They tell me that he closes a naked and he's covered me with a garment of righteousness. And to that extent, I know him. They tell me that he is a breaker and that he breaks fetters and he has set my soul at liberty. And so to that extent, I know him. They tell me that he is a king and that he reigns over sin. He hath subdued my enemies beneath his feet. And to that extent, I know him. I know him in that character. They tell me that he is a shepherd. I know him, for I'm his sheep. They say he is the door. I have entered through him, and so I know him as the door. They say he is food. He said, Spurgeon says, my spirit feeds on him as bread from heaven, and therefore I know him as food. How do you know Jesus? How do you know him? Do you know him in the saving grace? Has he broken chains off of your life? Has he saved you in the sense that when you are reading his word, it is as spiritual food to your body? Does it sustain you? Does it nourish you that doesn't matter what people say negatively? All of a sudden, while they're talking in their negativity, a word draws up within your spirit and you have that to draw on and that to hope in. How do you know him? Do you know him in that kind of power? Do you know him in that kind of truth? Or are you easily drawn away by the religiosity and the phrases? Well, you know, well, you know, but no, I know my Jesus. And I know him. And he says, I want a taste of his power. That, what is that power? That power that raised Christ from the dead. Let me ask you, do you know of that power tonight in your life? Do you know of the power that raised Christ from the dead? Are you experiencing that power in your day-to-day -day walk with the Lord? 
I was driving the other day and, and something was really troubling my heart and troubling my mind. And, and while I'm driving, I'm talking to the Lord in my thoughts. I'm talking to the Lord in my thoughts so I know what came after was absolutely God because the devil does not know my thoughts. And so as I'm pouring out to God while I'm driving, all these things that are just, right? And I went to say, Lord, why is it that I am and he interrupted me that I could not finish my thought. And he says, because I was rejected and despised. And he went on to, to quote the verse to me. In other words, he interrupted my thoughts. Don't even speak that to yourself. Don't even say that in your own thoughts. He came to interrupt my thoughts. I completed that on the cross. Don't go there. That is finished. That is done. And, I, and, and, and I'm driving, and if I could have put my brakes on and stopped and had a little thank you, Jesus moment, I would have, but I couldn't because of where I was. But I thought, Lord, that could have only been you that immediately spoke into my mind's thoughts and interrupted my thoughts because, Lord, you knew where I was going. You knew what I was saying. Do you know the power of God that will interrupt you when you are being toxic to yourself? Do you know the power of your God when you go to say something and he stops you because no, 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 that's not the end that I see. That's not what I have conquered. You see, I've put it in my word as a promise and therefore thus shall it be. Stop saying what it's going to be. Why speak it out so the enemy could have ammunition of what to play with? And what to use. Sometimes let your words be few is really what the Lord would want us to do. Let your words be few. Listen to my word. His word has been historically proven over and over again as faithful and true. And Paul says, I want to know of that power. I want to know of that resurrection power. That resurrection power, why? Because that power had evidence. It had evidence of an empty tomb. If Jesus was not resurrected, he would, there would not be an empty tomb. That resurrection power, why? Because that resurrection power is justifying. If Jesus did not die and rise, if he didn't die and was not raised from the dead, is what I'm trying to say, there would be no justification for our sin. So that, re that resurrection power is justifying. That resurrection power has evidence to prove itself as true. And that resurrection power is life-giving because without Jesus rising from the dead, being resurrected from the dead, you and I have no weight. To, to believe that we will one day also rise from the dead. So that resurrection power is life proof. And that resurrection power also gives comfort 
and consolation because when we have to go to that place of burying a loved one, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt because Jesus was raised from the dead, we know where they will be. We know that we can be consoled and comforted that they are in the presence of God. Paul wanted to know that power. Do you? Do you want to know him and the resurrection power, the power that is evidence that it is true, the power that it is life-giving, the power that it is justifying, the power that it is comforting and consoling? Do you want to know that power? That's who Paul wanted to know. I want to know him and his resurrection power. Why? Because you know what? It's not like some denominations out there would, would push towards. Oh, everything's going to be hunky-dory the minute you give your life to Jesus. No, there's going to be problems at times. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, you can have hope. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10 says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Why? Because we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What was he saying? Afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Why are you afflicted, but not crushed? Because he went to the cross. Why are you perplexed, confused, bewildered, but not in despair because he went to the cross? Why are you persecuted, but you're not forsaken because he went to the cross? Why are you struck down, but not destroyed, pushed upon, pressed against, but not destroyed because he went to the cross? That's the power. And knowing him and knowing that power gives us comfort. Like Timothy said, no one stood with me. Me, but the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me. That's knowing Jesus and his power. And Paul wanted to know that. And so we end with this. No one wants to be abandoned, afflicted, perplexed, crushed, struck down. But in so doing, we're sharing in, it, in his suffering. But you know what? We're not crushed. We're not despair. We're not forsaken. We're not destroyed. Why? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so we wrap up. The grand summit of it all is this. Read from the Amplified Bible, the last two verses. And this so that I may know him experientially, becoming more thoroughly acquainted with him, understanding the remarkable wonders of his person more completely, and in that same way, experience the power of his resurrection, which overflows and is active in believers, and that I may share the fellowship of his suffering by being continually conformed inward into his likeness, even to his death, dying as he did, so that I may attain to the resurrection that will raise me from the dead. Do you know him? Well, if you want to know him, 
and you do know him and you've tasted of his power and you want to know more of it, then we go back to the beginning. Rejoice. Rejoice. Because as you rejoice and you beware of all those things that would come to distract you, you will taste and see of the goodness of the Lord. Doesn't mean bad days won't come, but it means you're not crushed, you're not afflicted, you're not pressed down. He will see you through. Would it be your prayer to know him more? To know him more. To know of his power. You know, yesterday, last night I got a phone call. My mom had fallen. And as she, she fell outside her condo and she fell in such a way, she missed the last two cement steps. And she went to guard herself from hitting her head and she ended up landing on her hand that she uh, had to be rushed to the hospital and her wrist was completely crushed. When they did x-rays, they said, your bones are completely crushed. And so she was to receive surgery whatever it is that the doctor was not available. I'm not sure of that. But anyways, it is that she couldn't have the surgery. Of course, you know, you send out a text, hey, pray, and, and, and you pray. And, and I said, Lord, there's no distance in prayer. There's no distance in prayer. So I prayed and asked God that he would move, that he would heal her, Right? And so anyways, it is that the, the surgeon wasn't available, whatever was the actual details of that, that she couldn't have the surgery. They, they splint it, and they send her home. And I'm here in Canada entrusting her to the great physician. I woke up this morning, first thing I did, I picked up the phone. Mom, how are you doing? Well, she was in, in a whole lot of pain and, uh, but, you know, couldn't, couldn't take any pain medication because she hadn't filled the prescription and what she did have in the house she couldn't take because she couldn't open the bottle. Anyways, long story short, my brother was able to get there to bring her to the follow, to the, um, back to the hospital to see the surgeon. And in the follow-up x-rays, I'm, I'm driving here and I'm on Dixie Road and I said, Lord... You have healed before. You have done the miraculous before. So I'm praying that when they see the x-rays, that they will have seen that the great physician has gone before them. And that, Lord, she won't need this surgery. Lord, I am believing you because you have done it before. I have tasted and seen of his resurrection power. I have seen of his power. So I'm believing in that power. And I'm declaring this on Dixie Road as I'm approaching here today. And so about an hour or so after I'm here, my brother calls me. And uh, he says, yeah, we're just on our way home from the doctor. And um, so the doctor said to mom, who set your arm in this splint? Well, they didn't know the name of the doctor and uh, that, that had set it in a splint. And he said, um, it has been set so perfectly that your arm is actually straight and we won't have to do the surgery. You could just continue 
it will heal as it is. But is that not the power of God? Is it not the power of God? That is what we need to pray into, brothers and sisters, that we believe that the power of God is able to touch, change, transform, do whatever needs to be done in the area of our lives that needs his powerful intervention. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your study of Philippians. I thank you for Paul's hunger to know you because God, he gives us a hunger to want to know you. He gives us a hunger to, to want to taste of you. God, he gives us a hunger to just want to have a, a, just a sip of, of that revelation into your power. Jesus, as we just go now into our time of prayer, would you burn like fire this principle? Would you stamp it as a strong impression on our hearts that nothing around us, internally or externally, will deviate us from seeing you as the all-powerful God who can change circumstances, who can bring healing, who can do only what you can do, the impossible, because nothing is too difficult for you. Thank you, Father God, in Jesus' name, amen. And so for those of you who have joined us tonight online, thank you. We welcome you here Sunday morning uh, for a powerful morning with Pastor Dino and tomorrow morning online for our daily devotions. God bless you and God be with you. And while we break off to pray, you continue praying there in your home. Bye for now. Powerful word of prayer, and we need.